Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And we are we are back after a little <laughs> little bit of a, a delay, but we're we're back and we're we're gosh we're in the last half hour. we're actually in the last twenty five minutes of this movie I can't oh get over oh my gosh I can't believe that <laughs> it, it's flying by it's flying by we got some uh, we got some great guests coming coming up and uh, well we can talk we can talk today by ourselves but we'll have some some pretty cool guests coming up this week and the next couple of weeks um, but uh, everything's getting resolved it's uh, this in this minute. Uh, we're looking at uh, Ken Mattingly starting the power up for the the newest configuration that he has, and he turns on the lights in the uh, in the command module, and uh, then he says he's going to bring up the guidance control, and that's what they spend most of their time in this particular minute. We're just watching them throwing switches, um, but it, it fascinating thing when you're watching him uh, throwing the guidance switches, he uh, uh, he's he turns on the computer, which is going to eat up most of their power. Um, and remember, they've got to get to, was it 14, 14 amp? They've got, they've got a 4 amp window that they've got to clear. And so he turns this, uh, he turns this on, and it's moving up uh, past uh, 10 amps. And uh, uh, he gets the computer started. And the computer is going to be eating up a lot of, a lot of power. Um, uh, you know, you say to yourself, why do they need a computer to be running? They don't really need to make many calculations. But what the the part of the command module computer that they need is the part that interprets uh, the internal, uh, the inertial guidance system, the IMU. And uh, as we're watching this particular minute, there's a little switch when he throws on the power to see what's being displayed. He's looking at uh, the CMC, which is the command module computer, uh, where he turns in the, the attitude for to get the inertial guidance system working. Um, there's, if you look at that switch, if you, I know you only see it for about five seconds, but the switch goes one way to, uh, to check on how the command module computer is doing. But if you switch it the other way, there's, uh, a, a thing called GDC and, uh, the GDC is a, uh, that's a gyro device coupler. And what that is, it's kind of a backup system for, let's say you had to turn off the computer in the, uh, in the command module for a couple of days and you didn't know which direction the Apollo was pointing. Well, what the what the GDC would do, uh, this uh, this uh, device coupler would feed information from uh, what they call the uh, the B mags. Those are the body mounted attitude gyros, and what the gyros are, they're normally caged. That means they're not moving, but when you turn them on uh, and they spin up, they'll tell you what the difference is as as the you know if the ship's rotating and things like that they'll tell you what the, the rate at which different ways are turning on all three axes so it might not know which way it started out but when you turn it on it'll say okay we're rolling to the left at 10 degrees per minute and we're pitching forward at uh, three degrees per minute so with that information it'll feed that to the computer and so you know, hopefully the computer knows which way it's pointing and it'll be able to get the rates back from where uh, it, it's kind of like just uh, if you have updated notes on um, like a fuel gauge, it doesn't, you know, a fuel gauge doesn't know how much, how much you have in the tank, but it can tell you how much you've spent in the tank. That's, 
it, it's difficult to explain, but just the, it'll, it'll tell the rates to the computer so that the computer will know and not have to rely on if there's any problems with the IMU, it'll already know. These, this is the way we're traveling. This is the way the, the uh, ship is spinning. Uh, and it can, it can pick up that information from the, uh, from the, mount, the body-mounted gyros that are, that, are in the, that are in the machine itself. So anyway, it's just a, it's one of those things you see in passing that goes on for about two seconds. And you're like, oh, look at that little switch. That's what this does. <laughs> and uh, I used to think I knew about the command module and you know how all the different switches work. When I was a kid, I used to read all the, the technical journals you could get from NASA. But now that with the invention of inter- the Internet, I found that I, I know very little. <laughs> There's so many people that you can go out there and look at um, – there's on uh, SourceForge. There is an entire Project Apollo uh, electronics section that you can. It's like a Wikipedia just for Apollo systems, and you can dig down really deep and find out what every switch, every knob, every setting on the uh, command module's main panel does, and uh, you know, fly your, <laughs> fly yourself to the moon if you have access to a command module. I and, uh, uh, at the at the Cosmosphere in Kansas years ago I, I i don't know if it's still on display or not because i think they rotated some stuff around but they used to have an apollo command module sim uh that wow. you could go in um, wow and it was uh i want to say it was like like lit you know it was lit up I, you know yeah. it, it wasn't like running but you can go in there lay on your back and flip switches and stuff uh-huh. And it was so cool. Like that was, <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't know anything, you know, so I'm just like, this is all I knew the jargon wise was, you know, what I'd seen in Apollo 13, but it was mind blowing how much stuff is in front of your face in that thing. Like, oh, uh, I couldn't imagine, like, I couldn't imagine being in a hurry trying to flip switches, like, you know, totally, uh, just, I don't know, just totally crazy. And, you know, one of the things I always wondered and this is like one of those Jennifer Lavasser, how do you go to the bathroom in space kind of questions. <laughs> but it, I always wondered, you know, when they're floating around the cabin, you know, in, in zero gravity, uh, or as, as Al Warden would say, low gravity, because he, he didn't like the term zero gravity. Um, how do you, like, avoid, like, I always had a fear of, like, didn't you bump into the switches and stuff? Like, like was I, I always wondered if that was a concern, like, that you'd bump into the switches. Or if they're sort of safeguarded somehow or something, you know. Yeah, but. I mean, a lot, a lot of the bigger switches have the have the toggle flips that go. They, they're like cap guards that go over the top of it. And we see that later on, uh, when 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 uh, Swigert is getting ready to jettison, um, you have to you have to flip up a cap to to load them. But a lot of times on the machine, the the buttons themselves, it's it it's difficult it's difficult to picture because we're used to having a control panel where all the knobs work, but for the most part, the panels are disabled, and you actually sort of have to arm them on the uh, on the fuse panel to turn them on. So a lot of the switches don't work until you first turn on a switch that says, "Okay, turn on this panel." That's gonna <laughs> so it'll wow. so it'll start working. I I, and, boy, I learned something today. I always wondered about that. And you'll you'll hear a lot about it when, uh, especially if you listen to uh, lunar module when they're when they're working on the lunar module. There's a lot of things that they have to program and turn on. They have to turn on circuit breakers so that different parts of the ship will work. And most of the reason that they do that is, uh, as we're dealing with in this particular minute, we're trying to save power all the time, trying to use the least amount of power possible. So they'd shut everything down. to the In the lunar module, if you're standing in the lunar module and you're facing your control panel, to your left and to your right 
are uh, the circuit breakers for just about every switch that's in front of you. And they're mostly turned off. So you turn off all those switches. And when it's time to, you know, start the, uh, uh, the descent to the, to the lunar surface, the, one of the first steps that you do in the checklist is go around and you turn all these, um, uh, these circuit breakers and you say, this one's going to be on, this one's going to be on, and this one's going to be on. And then you turn around and all of a sudden the panel in front of you lights up because you've turned on those buttons. So then you can control the ship uh, from from that attitude. That's um, really cool. I, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I always wondered. You know, you're floating around and just bump the panel. and like, oh, there goes the limb. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, like... I mean, I mean, well, yeah. The, the the thing to worry about there is, I mean, I worry about kicking the uh, the circuit breaker panel. I, I know that I know that the buttons are hard to press, and you got to like turn them to push them in. Uh, but I'd still be panicked around getting <laughs> on the circuit breakers and actually turning on the abort <laughs> sequence or something. Um, that that always bothered me when I would read, like when they were setting up, when, when they were setting up to land, uh, and they they turn on the circuit breakers and tell the computer what they were going to do. They only had a few buttons to work with, so they had the they had the little what they call the disky where they could put in numerical entries, and then they had a a general purpose switch that followed different um, requirements, but it was called the abort switch. And when you turned on the abort system, you had to press the abort button. And I, if if I saw a button that said abort, <laughs> I, I'd be really reluctant to put. It's like it's like saying to you know to make sure your fire alarm is turned on, hit the fire alarm button. So I yeah I just uh, yeah it would make me a little bit queasy. <laughs> I think, um, but it's but it's fast. But I I can strongly recommend it's out there. Um, it's on sourceforge.net if you go to N-A-S-S-P. And there's a whole bunch. I mean, there's so much stuff on Project Apollo. Uh, you can, I, I, I really have to avoid that website because I tend to lose myself um, on the Project Apollo site because it, it's like Wikipedia. You go into something and you see something highlighted and then you got to follow the next link. And, and it's pretty soon you're, you know, hands on grill, you're lost in the, you're lost <laughs> in the forest. Um, but still very exciting stuff. And it's, you know, it's amazing that it's it's nice knowing that there are other people out there that really do the rivet counting, so you can uh, you can follow along with them. Um, That's cool. Wow. So uh, we get down to they've turned everything on, and they get they get to eighteen amps, and uh, they're still getting fed electricity from the lunar module. And John Aaron tells uh, uh, tells Mattingly that they've got it. So he's he you know they it's like grab all the grab all the books, grab all the procedures, and we're going to head over to uh, 31 North, which is the uh, the building where uh, Mission Control was at the time. Um, and there's this great scene where they pull up. Uh, I, I I always love scenes where there's indoor and outdoor sets where they're where they're meeting the indoor and outdoor sets. There, uh, when I when I did a lot of work on my TV Dad site, uh, I'd go to television shows uh, on on location shots, and there was this. There was this one show about a mental hospital called Wonderland, and uh, they had a. It, it's very similar if you if you ever watched the show ER. There, there's one side of the set that pointed outdoors, and what they would do is, if they had an ambulance pull up at this mental hospital, they'd go to the outdoor set, and then they could, you know, they could show people being carried in on gurneys and things like that, or being examined or something. And uh, it's it's always tricky because the lighting change is. It, especially on film, it's very difficult to control the lighting so that you have, you know, outdoors you're lit with uh, mostly mirrored screens. You can have some have some lights and it's sunshine, but then when you go indoors, 
you've got to deal with tungsten lights or back then there were even you know carbon lighting and it's such a it's such a hassle for the camera people to keep you know, it, it, you you have to. I mean, this is this is long ago stuff. So, with film emulsification and the film type that you're using, when you go from outdoors to indoors, people's skin can turn yellow green, or you know, their hair starts looking purple. And <laughs> right. It, it, it's all kinds of crazy stuff, and you can kind of see it in the the very last couple of seconds of this minute, where when they go in and everything suddenly turns very yellow because they were using this tungsten outdoor. Um, uh, film stock uh, indoors and they just drove you know they drove it indoors with this and it just very awkward looking but uh i can imagine that the cinematographer was chewing on his nails going yeah this isn't gonna kind of work but we're gonna have to make it work uh so anyway that's my <laughs> my one my one note on the uh, on the film filming content of this uh, of this particular minute uh and another another part of this minute uh the last thing I can think of with, with this minute is this is the ultimate in James Horner music. He uses the phrase that we're hearing in here where it's going da da dum 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 You can hear that very same music in everything from the Rocketeer to uh, uh, de- definitely where the first place you'd hear it would be a Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. He used that as a theme just about everywhere when they're getting ready to uh, shoot at Khan and... Uh, uh, you know, lay the reliant to waste. It's the same phrase, and it's it's uh, it's it's Horner stealing from himself, which is what he was frequently accused of. But really, that's his language. He taught us that language. In He's a good of at films. it too. I mean, yeah, yeah. And and it, you know, it's funny how he has you so. It's like Pavlov. He has you so attuned to his music. You're like, uh, you kind of lean forward in your seat when you hear it. It's like, oh, oh. Is, are they going to make it? Are they going to be able to do it? You know, well, they, they did it the last 15 times that I watched this movie, but it's still exciting. <laughs> the uh, last, the, the one that I always think of, I think, is uh, uh, Backdraft. That's yes, the, yeah. Um, when you watch the movie Backdraft, it, I mean, the sound, the soundtrack's a character in the film. You know yeah, I mean? for sure. Uh, I think I think I'm stealing your uh, line there from a couple episodes ago, but, um, but it's certainly... Um, I can tell you, as someone who worked with a lot of firefighters, that main theme from Backdraft is used in a lot of firefighter fan videos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's the sizzle reel for whatever you know the uh, it's, the it's Montclair the theme song Fire Department. Of firefighting. Got, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, uh, um, but it, it, I don't know. I, I dare somebody to listen to that song and not think about, you know, the brave men and women who are firefighters. I mean, it it it, it fit perfect. I mean, it's oh just yeah, perfect yeah, into yeah. that. No, he's he 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 has such a compelling theme, and um, I mean I know everybody. The first the first uh, composer that people think of always is John Williams, and John Williams is a very you know he he has his own style and everybody knows his stuff, but I think that Horner Horner relies on more simple um, motifs. The the motifs that he uses he uses in all of his films. So you it's kind of like watching a Hitchcock film. All the Hitchcock films generally have the same feel about them when you're when you're watching the same kind of cameras and and horner has that same way that he uses these these throbbing pulsing uh beats that it, it it's almost like a heart it's almost like the heartbeat of the movie and you know this is how i'm feeling now and he's not trying to make you feel that way it's like he's just kind of adding he's kind of like the uh the salt and pepper on your <laughs> on the on the film uh but it really if you watch this with the sound of it's like okay this is a bunch of guys sitting in an office looking at a needle but 
it, you know, and here it's like, oh, this is exciting. They're gonna, is he gonna throw the switch? Is it gonna work? Is he gonna? So, it and it does his job. He did a, he did a great job with it. Um, I love when there's, um, I'll, I'll get probably super cliched here, but I love when there's music that is so iconic with a film that literally maybe four notes of it are all you need to completely just set the scene. And what I mean by that is if you've watched like the, you know, the new trailer for like, you know, Maverick Top Gun 2 or whatever. Yeah. You know, they can set the tone with like three three notes. Oh yeah, you yeah. You know, because yeah. that Top Gun anthem, you know, three notes in and and you right away you're reminiscent or even like Ghostbusters or uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, know. or I mean, or, yeah, and, and like Apollo thirteen, you hear yeah. the you hear those the French horn playing, and yeah. it's like, oh, I know what this movie is. Yep. Um, yep. Or those that's, those drums, you know. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The timpanis and I, I, yeah, and I know I've told the story yeah. before, but man, uh, you know, go down to um, oh, geez, uh, Huntsville to the Space Center there to see the Saturn V. And it was dumb luck. They were just opening the museum for the day, so I don't know if I hit it on the right time or what. But I get out of the elevator to go up a floor to the to the Saturn V, and the doors open, and literally it's those drums start playing as I walked out of the elevator, and you're looking at the engines of a Saturn V. Yeah. And it's like I dare you not to get chills. Like that was just incredible. Yeah, I don't I don't know who did the uh, I don't know who the composer was for the music that they use in the new. Atlantis uh, opening, but if uh, when you're when you're in front of Atlantis and they they have a they have a pre-show, it's much like the uh, the Apollo Saturn pre-show that they have at, at the Kennedy Space Center. But when you go in front of Atlantis, they have a pre-show that explains the history of uh, where the space shuttle came from. That this this first idea of just making a paper model that would yeah. fly, return, and come back. Yeah. A- and uh, they show you this big video, and they're playing this gentle music in the background, and it has it has the same this French horns theme. And it says, now you're about to see the real thing. This is the, re- you know, this is here after 25 missions. And the- then they open the doors and they're playing this thing and you spill out. And it's like, it is like being in a movie about Atlantis. And here's, here's the real deal, which is, you know, that's, Nothing that's beats the, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the way I, the way I feel every time I go into a museum and I see a famous aircraft or spacecraft, I don't need the music, but for people who don't know about it, it's a great introduction to saying, this is why you should be as excited as this music is when you see this thing. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes, depending on what it is, the music will help. Um, it, it needs to be low. It shouldn't be the center point yeah. of an exhibit. But, uh, for example, what we're doing with our – we just got a Huey yesterday. Uh, part of the reason why we're delayed is if you follow Jim and, uh, and I just banter on Facebook as uh, we had to unload a helicopter. But uh, – <laughs> Um, but, you know, we're, we're trying to set the tone for Vietnam. And Vietnam, of course, was very, um, you know, there was a lot of amazing music that came out of the Vietnam era. And uh, so we're trying to, you know, make a loop of maybe about, you know, an hour's worth of programming that makes it sound like you're listening to a transistor radio that we actually have in the exhibit uh, that plays that music because it helps set the setting, you know, set the scene of, you know, this is what they listen to. This is the type of music that these guys would have had. So slightly different, but you know, it, it is a way of using the music to, to, to sort of set the scene, if you will, that, and transform you back in time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, music is such a, it, music is very emotional and it brings back not, like nothing else. I think you hear a song and you remember either where you were when you first heard that song or some 
particular event in your life. And, uh, you know, with, with most people on, on movies, you hear music and you, you're suddenly brought back. I know if, if I hear the band of brothers theme, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you suddenly, you can remember every, every moment of that, of that series, uh, you know, and it's, I mean, it's everything from that to hearing the Simpsons, the, the opening uh, choir sound. You're like, you can see the clouds parting. It's just <laughs> one of those, you know, it pops in your head. So it's just, an, it's an amazing, it's amazing how much sound, uh, anticip- you know, makes your brain anticipate what's going to happen next. My, uh, and, not to go too off track, but my dad, <laughs> uh, Vietnam veteran, uh, his, uh, the soundtrack of his Vietnam experience, I think, like a lot of people, was, uh, was CCR. And um, I can remember riding in a car with my dad, and man, he just had his you know Creens Clearwater Revival uh, <laughs> uh, music going, and and I asked him flat out, you know, like, you know, this is you know, when I was younger, I didn't quite get it. I was just like, oh, Jesus, band again, you know, and and it wasn't until I was older, I'm like, oh, this is this is what he listened to when he was over there, you know, that's that that just that that music just kind of stuck with him, you know. Yeah, it's, when I was when I was growing up, I used to hear um, "Satisfaction" by the Rolling Stones, and it was always it was always on AM radio. And I was I was a kid during Vietnam, um, but you know, after Apocalypse Now came on, all I can think of when I hear "Satisfaction" is a is a guy uh, uh, water skiing behind a PBR. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, Charlie it's don't just, surf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's just amazing how much that like just a movie has changed that song for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's you know we have a joke that the sound that a Huey's uh, rotor makes is actually CCR's Fortunate Son, and uh, <laughs> because it's it's used in everything, and this is really funny, and, and I and I do want to put this out there as much as I can that you know when we started into this this project. Um, you know, we're like, okay, we don't want to fall into the cliche of just putting CCR music over everything, you know. Um, so what I did was I reached out to the Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association, and I just said, hey, can could I ask you guys, what did you listen to while you were over there? Give us a list of your favorite songs from Vietnam. And, like, over half of it was CCR. Like, they were just like, <laughs> they're like, it's in all the war movies because we literally listened to it over there, you know. So it was like, well, so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah, it's um, well, it, you know, I, we've been we've been kind of talking around, but we haven't mentioned what what uh, the helicopter was that you brought in. Let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So we brought in uh, a Huey, a UH one uh, uh, B model, Bravo model Huey, um, and its tail number is seven three three. It's uh, six, I think it's six three eight seven three three. Uh, is its full tail number, and it is a multi tour uh, combat veteran from Vietnam. Um, a B model, so it's it's a shorter one. It's a little bit, uh, you know, it's an early version. And uh, ours was eventually a gunship in the 121st uh, Assault Helicopter Company, the uh, Vikings. They were called the Devils of the Delta. And um, so uh, this is our first Vietnam-era aircraft to be uh, added to the EA's collection here in Oshkosh. And uh, we're just really excited. We've actually been in contact with our original pilot and uh, crew chief. Um, and, uh, we've gotten, our, our, our crew chief has actually handed us over, uh, uh, so that we could scan his original photo album from his time in country with our aircraft. Um, so there's nothing like being able to point to actual photos of your actual artifact in theater. Yeah. Um, that's, there's, that's astounding. That's, that's a museum gold right there. Um, yeah. and, and we have it, 
you know, we have tons of color photos that he took, uh, both on board and outside of our aircraft, and you know, the guys and the crew standing around it, and uh, it's it's so exciting. See, so yesterday we actually uh, the aircraft was donated by a company called uh, it's a 501c3 called Lighthorse Legacy. Uh, they do this for a living. They try to honor veterans, get them active, uh, try to deal with veterans who maybe have PTSD, and get them to come out and help restore uh, vintage helicopters and aircraft. And then they're, they're a non-profit, so um, they basically get the parts for free from different boneyards and things like that. Um, and then once the aircraft are restored, they turn it over uh, to a museum or a memorial. Um, so, I mean, they, they donated this helicopter to us, and with this helicopter comes... Not just the airframe, but the the legacy attached with it uh, of of our crew and those of the 121st. Um, so we're really proud uh, to get this specific airframe. Um, you know, and it's going to serve multi purposes. I mean, in our museum, if you're in the 121st, that's that's your aircraft because we have a 121st bird on display. If you were with 733, then oh my God, that's that's your airframe, your tail number. And then if you were in Vietnam, you know, even if you didn't fly, the Huey is so symbolic uh, and so iconic from that conflict that uh, you, you didn't have to be a pilot or an airman to have a story about being in a Huey. And uh, so it's going to touch those folks, too. So, you know, we're, we're not just a military museum where we really kind of span all genres of aviation. So we knew we didn't have a, you know, we couldn't get six aircraft from Vietnam because, you know, we would load out our Eagle hangar. Um, but we knew we wanted to get one and we just thought the Huey is the one to go. That's the, just the most iconic aircraft, uh, from, from Vietnam, which was known as a helicopter war. So, um, we're, we're really excited. I mean, we are, we just moved it into the exhibit yesterday. Uh, the truck left this morning and, uh, we're all good. It's, uh, it fit perfectly. And, uh, it, uh, we're just, it's just kind of surreal to walk (laughs) in there and see this thing sitting in there. It's like a, it's kind of like a ghost ship. It looks like it landed right out of Vietnam. Wow, wow, yeah. It's. It, I mean, I know you do a lot of modeling, and this is this is one of your one to one versions. It's, <laughs> get, <laughs> yeah. to, get to paint it up, and yeah, it's. Uh, you, you're going to get the original nose art and everything on there. So that's. That's astonishing. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have uh, yeah. we have an original nose art panel uh, with the Viking logo painted on it, and uh, it's just a, uh, it's just incredible. Our aircraft carried two different. Um, nose art panels during its career in the 121st uh it was known as the good widow mrs jones for a while um and she had a rather risque pinup girl painted on the nose um and then uh later it had the 121st uh, blue diamond with sort of a viking cartoon viking uh, painted on it and uh we're going to restore it uh and, and the panel we have is the viking so uh that's how it'll it'll be on there yeah. Probably a little bit easier to sell uh, T-shirts. Well, it's a little bit easier to sell T-shirts. And actually, why we went that route is for most of its career, that's what it looked like. There was only about two months where it had the Good Widow Mrs. Jones artwork. So the Good Widow Mrs. Jones was actually a different aircraft. Uh, That aircraft was shot down. The pilot saved the nose art panel, which was actually on a battery cover on the front of the Huey. And he installed it on this B-model 733. Uh, and then eventually uh, it went, he got a D model, so he took the panel with him, and they had a replacement, which was then painted with the blue diamond and the Viking, uh, and that's how it flew most of its time. So when we, you know, when we had to, 
pick out a nose or, or a way to you know basically to do it. First off, we had a nose or pail donated to us. That's original artwork, and we're like, well, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then we are gonna have a nose art. So we're actually gonna put that in a case next to the aircraft, and then we're gonna have somebody come up and live paint the nose art on the nose of our aircraft. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's certainly part of it is that it is easier to sell T-shirts yeah. <laughs> with a cartoon Viking rather than a half-naked lady on it. Um, but uh, um, but also you know realistically. Uh, one is the aircraft flew in this this scheme for most of its career, and then two is that uh, painted with the Viking on it is more symbolic for everybody who served in the one twenty first, yeah, as opposed to just one aircraft. So yeah, yeah, the, um, yeah, the fellow that had flown it with that that's the the, the closest tie in with the other with exactly. The other now we do have photos of it painted as Goodwood and Mr. Jones in the exhibit with it though, so. So you you can kind of see that it's uh, what's really funny. I, I'm going way off topic. So people no, no, no. Like, ah, well, we're turning well, out. This isn't Apollo 13 anymore. No, but, uh, well, all these all these things are. This this helicopter was was there during the Apollo era. So yeah, this is, oh yeah, we're yeah. talking and, about the uh, time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, so basically, um, the what's really funny about this is the Goodwood and Mrs. Jones artwork is really famous, just because it's kind of really really. Uh, you know, a pretty pinup girl on a drab helicopter makes some good uh, uh, photos, and it makes good decals for plastic models, and it makes good book covers, and uh, so that has been used everywhere. Um, but it's always depicted as a D, as a Delta model, and all this stuff. And we could, when we first got word that this was our helicopter, we couldn't figure this out uh, as to why it's always depicted as a D, yet we have a B, and then. You know, the whole story came out with switching nose art panels, and we kind of figured it out. So, um, but yeah, it uh, it's gonna be really cool. I hope everybody can come up and join us. And uh, if you visit the museum in Oshkosh once we're back to normal and open, uh, hopefully uh, before the end of the summer here, uh, you guys can come out and check out the exhibit. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds great. I just looked up the Good Widow Mrs. Jones. Yeah, make sure you put those pictures like way high up above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, funny story is. Uh, early on, she is rather, uh, she's in something very sheer, let's put it that way. Um, and then somebody kind of didn't like it. So they made her, they made them paint shorts on her. Um, (laughs) so the picture we use is one with her with shorts on, (laughs) (laughs) which is how she appeared when she was on our aircraft. So we got a little lucky. So, yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) Any anyway, rate, that's a long okay. story. Well, there that, we go. That's a, a fascinating diversion here. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, well, we'll leave, we'll leave, uh, we'll leave our crew as they're running into mission control. Uh, tomorrow we've got a fascinating guest to talk about uh, as we're in mission control. Some of the uh, signs that are hanging up on the wall there and uh, an explanation behind them. So um, I, I hope we were fascinating today, but I know you're going to hear a very fascinating episode tomorrow. Uh, but until then, we'll we'll uh, see you here next time because it looks like we're coming up on uh, lost signal in about 30 seconds. So we'll see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 minute.